This is an ABC podcast. On Conversations Today, my guest is Susan Varga. Susan is a writer. She's the author of prize-winning novels, memoirs and poetry. But it took Susan many decades before she could find the courage to write. These were years that felt like a kind of wilderness, where she was finding her way through Sydney's bohemian underground, some turbulent relationships and the long shadow of her family's wartime experience in Hungary. Susan's latest book, and the one she says will likely be her last, is called Hard Joy, Life and Writing. Hi, Susan. Hello. You believe that dogs are one of the unqualified delights of life. Tell me how your dog, Sarah, helped save your life back in 2011. Yes, well, I I believe that... um, Dogs have always been a big part of joy and sorrow because they often die before you. Uh, but at the same time, you get another dog and he, uh, we go on. So Sarah actually was my favourite dog. She came to me uh, more or less by accident and she just jumped straight into my lap and said, take me home. She was part of a, 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 a menagerie of ten dogs and... Um, she needed to have a home where she was the queen or princess. And um, she was eccentric. She wasn't demonstrative, but we just got on. We just understood each other straight away. What sort of size was she? She was only tiny. But uh, going back to how she saved my life, I believe this is actually exactly what happened. I had a period when they found I had atrial fibrillation, which is which is um, you know, fairly common with the heart beat, you know. And they said they could fix it fairly quickly or they could try to fix it by putting my heart back into rhythm. So they told me there was one in a thousand chance of, uh, of having a stroke. So I thought, fair enough, one in a thousand. And anyway, I went back to the country where I lived and that same day... I was having a little rest because I was tired from the procedure. She was beside me, as she always was, on the floor, not on the bed. And I was on the telephone negotiating a a sofa. And uh, suddenly the pen fell from my hand. And then suddenly the phone fell from my hand. I had no idea what was happening. Then I suddenly saw a Sarah at the corner of my eye, she was shaking. She was so urgent. Every fibre of her said, get up, get up, find Anne. It was so clear to me. So I wove my way out of bed towards the back door and I found my partner, Anne, and, and then fell, fell, and there was no speech anymore apart from one weird word. I can't even remember what it was. So I think she saved my life. Otherwise, I would have lain there thinking, I don't know what's happened to me, and, and I would have maybe died as I, I was there. So you had had a, a massive stroke, a left brain yes, stroke. Yes, yeah. What do you remember happening after that? Um, I couldn't speak. and I couldn't uh, move anything. I was still conscious. Then they took me into ne- nearest hospital. Unfortunately, it didn't have the clot drugs that they do in major hospitals in, in big towns or big cities. And I was in emergence there for three three days before they f- 
took me up to Sydney and um, I couldn't speak, I couldn't read. What did it feel like inside your head, Susan, if you think back to those early days after the stroke? Was it like a fog or what do you remember? Um, There's a weird survivor's thing that happens where somehow you know you at least you survived and I couldn't believe that this wouldn't pass. And it was a huge shock as as it went on that I couldn't string words together anymore. And another shock that I couldn't spell, you know, a shock that I couldn't type and so on and so on. And it seemed to me that that was a the biggest blow. My whole right side was in spasm and, and weak and, and achy, but that didn't worry me so much. What about what about my speech? What about my words? Because words are the tools of trade for a writer. I thought my my writing, which I just started late in life, I'd only only just begun, and then maybe I could never write anymore. With your language, did it come back all of a sudden, or was it step by step? Was it hard fought it, all the way? It was very very hard fought all the way. In the first almost a year, I only did speech exercises and what's your street number and how to pronounce such and such or repeat over and over certain exercises, choo, coo, boo, boo, or whatever it was. And it was only towards the end of that year when I just thought I have to do something, otherwise I'm going to burst apart, I sat down at my desk and by accident, virtually, I didn't know what I was going to do, I wrote a tiny little poem, tiny, tiny little poem. It was just called First Poem. An old garden seat, a new bed of plants, flowering into the new year. Old fears, new fears. Small shoots of thought sustain me, Help me, words, you always have. So once I wrote that, tiny as it was, and it was a real plea from my heart for words to help me, even though they had become my enemies, um, that I thought, oh, well, maybe, just maybe I can write a few little poems. Susan, I'm thinking about the athletes and Olympians I've spoken to over the years who've had sort of catastrophic injuries and they talk about the first time they manage to sit back on their bike or the first time they do a push-up and and they feel maybe I'll get back out mm. on the track one day. It sounds like this was a similar moment for you as a rider. That's absolutely true. This is this was my Olympics and... And actually writing Hard Joy 10 years later was, you know, like the gold, the golden medal <laughs> almost because it seemed like a huge hurdle, like a big mountain. They're all the kind of fairly boring, I guess, sort of speech exercises you had to yeah. do, which I imagine weren't much fun for that brain of yours. How did different friends help bringing a different kind of rehab that was perhaps more suited to you and your interests? Well, I was very, very lucky. I had some good friends around and they all banded together and they, all, they brought their different skills to, to, to me. Uh, a music teacher, a very good pianist as well. She, we sang together and singing is a different part of the brain. So that brought out emotion 
uh, which I was, was suppressing, but also I could remember words, you know, which I couldn't do when, when I was actually writing or, or speaking. What songs did you sing, do you remember? Oh, oh little, little old songs, you know, like Green Sleeves or whatever, and I would cry over Green Sleeves because it brought that lovely feeling back of creativity and, and the world of music. So that was rather nice. Another friend read you Charles Dickens. That's right. Dickens was my favourite author. I came across him fairly late in life and I was just charmed by the, the amount of, oh, sheer genius, let's, let's put it that way. And I had a favourite passage in a less-known book called Dombey and Son. I, I got my friend Jean to read the first chapter of Dombey and Son and that also made me cry and made me feel happy as well because... Uh, these treasures were still come back one way or the other, yeah. What about how other people treat you, Susan, after a stroke and the changes that it brings to the way you speak and your mobility? Do you feel like the rest of the world can be a bit impatient sometimes? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I think lots of people, well, actually the nurse said to, to Anne, take her home, dear, and put her in a nice comfy chair. And I thought, bugger that, and that's never going to happen. And I had exactly the same reaction. Uh, but that, that's the idea. And also a lot of people shut up because often they have a speech difficulty. Thank God I learned to speak again, more or less. But some people can't, can't speak or feel they can't speak as they used to. So I've always made a point of still speaking, you know, it's a different voice, but, you know, I can make myself understood. You shouldn't be silenced. Lots of people get silenced once they have a stroke. As you're describing yourself, you're someone so in love with language, so living in words, but English isn't your first language. You were born in Hungary yeah. and didn't come to Australia yeah. until you were five. What was life like for your family in Budapest before the Second World War. What stories have you heard about the kind of life they were living there? There were well-to-do family, uh, not hugely sophisticated. My father was a, a village lad who they'd made money out of the feather business. Um, the feather business? Yes, yeah. Um, beautiful dunas and, and, you know, real feathers. <laughs> um, and he was quite a bit older than, yes, than your mum. Yes, he was a very, very shy man and... Just loved to read. I think I got all that from him. And he finally found my mother, who is much more extrovert and also um, rather beautiful. So all the village thought, oh, he's finally found someone. She's actually good looking as well and, <laughs> and so on. So, so they were intent to, a, to having a decent bourgeois life. And um, it's a huge change. Pretty much when I was born, my mother was advised to abort me, actually, because in the middle of the Second World War and Hungary was about to be invaded by Hitler and there was no point, people said, in putting a Jewish child into that environment. My mother was desperate to have another child, though, and she said, if we're going to survive, we're going to survive together. 
Hitler crossed the border into Hungary in early 1944 when you were just six months old. Yeah. What happened to your father then? Well, my father was at at my birth, but the next day he was called up uh, to what they called a labour camp, which was forced labour. It wasn't a concentration camp per se, but they managed to kill him from from neglect and and illness. And uh, I think he also... He was so disillusioned with what was happening in the world that he gave up, I think. How did your mother hear that your father had died in that labour camp? My mother heard through a messenger who was in the same bunk room uh, where my father was and he just said to him, just tell my my children and, and my wife that I've died and he died the next day. So your young mother was left with your older sister, who was three at the time, and you just a a baby. Yeah. What did she do? Well, my mother, thank God, was um, a very uh, courageous and resourceful person. So we were what was called a mixed family. That is, our family was was half Jew and half Christian. So the the ones who were more Christian were safer. And one of her brothers had married a Christian girl. So she decided to give my sister to them for their safekeeping. Was I, w- I was on the rest, so I had to be with her. And we fled. We fled twice to a hotel, which turned out to be too dangerous. Then we fled again to another village, very remote, where no one would question us. We had false passports. But it was always at also a time of real tension and I got very, very sick from dysentery. Mother was f- afraid to move because move would would meant um, discovery possibly. There's no doctors. The front was coming to the village and so on. Um, but eventually she got back to a safer place I was just put on vitamins by a local doctor because he thought I had very few days left to live. And so, you know, I only sat up when I was about 16 months old. So extraordinarily, and as you say, a testament to your mother's yeah. grit and, and endurance that you and she and your older sister make it through yeah. the war. Yeah. What changed for the three of you in 1946? Well... As it happened in post-war Hungary, people were trying to rebuild shattered lives. And my stepfather, as it turned out, had come back from the war totally shattered. He found that his two small boys and his wife and most of his family had been wiped out in Auschwitz. And after a few months of intense grieving... He pulled himself together and started look, looking for a wife, thinking maybe I'll, there'll be children who've lost their father. Now he met my mother and there were the two children, girls this time, but, you know, for him it was a restoration, a new beginning. That they started life again. And you called him dad as you grew up, Susan? Yes, I had virtually no memories of my father, of my real father, so it didn't, it didn't take me long to call him dad. 
the next thing that happens in Hungary is that the communists take over yeah. in 1948 and your family fled, decided to flee. Do you have memories at all of, of, of leaving Hungary? Only a little, just a little, a few little flashes. I think I remember when we finally got on the train, it was a secret leaving because everything was secret just in case we were stopped at the border or, or actually at the railway station because the communists were already, already in, in control. So I remember that I had to earn my new name and when the guard came to ask me who I was, I punched my, my fist and said, I know, I know, but I've forgotten. And everyone froze in the carriage. Thank God the, the guard just decided to, to just forget what I said. And so we, we were out of Hungary in Austria and we became safe. And on one hand, Susan, this is... Of course, it's a story of survival. You were a baby in the war. Your mother saved you. You managed eventually to come to safety and refuge. But how do you think about the impact of those early years now? How do you see the kind of effect being a baby during those years and what your mother was going through, what you were going through? How has that impacted you? I think that at the time, parents who'd gone through that who've saved their children, a huge task, they downplayed the effects on the, on the children. They probably didn't even know how, how much the children were affected. And for years I bought a story from my mother that, you know, I was saved, I was, I was fine, and so was my, my sister who was more conscious than I was. But she was entirely wrong and it was her rationalisation well, it was only later in life, quite a bit later, that I, I realised that, in fact, I was hugely impacted. How did going to a conference with other mm. child survivors of the Holocaust uh, shift your thinking about this? Well, I always, I always thought I didn't qualify uh, because I was so, so small. But, of course, anyone who knows a tiny bit of uh, Freudian psychology, we know that the first five years, uh, everything to your development. And it's only when I was, was surrounded by other child survivors that I thought, oh, heavens above, those fir first few years, everything of who I am now and why I have so many insecurities and so many uncertainties and so many fears in the, I'm now living in nice, bland, safe Australia. That was the whole message of the whole thing. And we were meant to be okay. Well, of course we're not. And the long-term effects of trauma and also the long-term effects of actually being a migrant. Because when you're quite young, all you want is to be an Australian very quickly. So for years I thought, oh, okay, I learned English very quickly. I've got a quite broad Australian accent. Now, of course I'm an Australian. I do have these embarrassing parents with strong Hungarian accents and da-da-da. I wasn't interested in Hungary because, you know, this is my home. It took me a long time to work out that actually I have a, a dual identity that I will never, ever drop. And it's been like that all my life. 
Well, in safe, bland Sydney, (laughs) you did very well at school. You were excelling academically. But why were you nearly expelled from high school, Susan? Well, I suppose I was a bit of a rebel and I suppose I was with a group of girls who actually read and we weren't interested in sport. We were the nerds, but also a bit eccentric. So we thought that the school magazine was extremely boring and extremely bland and wanted to do our own. So we wrote little articles and we illustrated it and it was very harmless. It was quite delightful when I look back at it. But the headmistress was appalled. You know, this is an act of rebellion. Well, there was a story about sex in that magazine. Yes, Yes, it was. We were talking about the 50s. So the idea was no sex, no religion and no politics. (laughs) Well, there there was a story about the sex life of frogs. Uh, there's a, we had an article saying, why all this bloody Shakespeare, which no one understands, <laughs> but it was, this was, this was not on. And so we went to the papers. So the headmistress is appalled and is about to expel you and you went to the newspapers. No, that, that, she wanted to expel me after the newspaper, I must so say. <laughs> what did you go to the newspapers well, we for? Well, we saw Freedom of speech. You know, we were seven, 16, freedom of speech. You know, it was. <laughs> and, and what did the Sunday Mirror do when this was happening? The Sunday Mirror splashes all over the front page. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother was freaked out. She thought my, my, my life was going to be ruined. She actually asked them, demanded that my, my face be blanked out. On the front yes, page of the paper? Yes, yes. And, and did they, a, did they agree? Case. Yeah, the other, the other three girls had their real faces. Mine was blanked out. I was furious. I was furious with her. (laughs) You didn't get your moment of free speech glory. (laughs) Well, it was at around this same time when you were still at high school that you started visiting Rose Street in the city. What sort of place was it? Well, you know, it's it's demolished now. Only a few people a certain age will remember it. It was a little bohemian corner right in the city. There was a wonderful bookshop there. There was a there's a co- coffee shop that actually served real cappuccinos. So it was a, a, a mecca. You met George, who worked at the bookshop yes, in Rose Street. Yes. And what world did he introduce you to? Well, he was a, I think he was already a part-time lecturer in philosophy, but he worked at the bookshop partly because he's um he knew everything. He represented to me, you know, the the, the wonderful male who has an enormous brain, who knows everything. I should aspire to that level, et cetera, et cetera. And he wants to tell the women around him all that he knows. All the time. <laughs> and you have to listen and be and, and just just take it in. <laughs> And there were so many of those around. Unfortunately, there are quite a few still, I, I gather, <laughs> as, as I hear you laughing. <laughs> so he was, he was part of this movement that gets called the push yeah, in Sydney yes, in the, in the yeah. 50s and 60s. What kind of people did you meet? What kind of parties did you start well, going to? Let's talk about um, the 50s for a minute. Now, remember the pubs closed at six. There were no ladies allowed in the bar. So my first experience of the push when George took me to a pub was old fella, very pissed, 
he actually pissed on my leg as I was standing at the at the public bar. I thought, oh my heavens, uh, I can't say anything about this in case people think that I'm I'm scared or or too prim and proper. But at the same time, I thought, oh, these might be my people because there were so many different people. There were academics, there were uh, petty creams, uh, there were people who were anarchists. There was lots of there was meant to be free sex, you know, which again was fodder for the Daily Mirror and the Daily Sun, you know, free sex. Did it go both ways, or was it was it freer for the blokes and the women? Well, a few women could keep up. Yeah, but most of us were just pawns for the men, to be honest. We didn't understand that at the time, that we th- we thought that was the way it was. Well, pre-women's lib, and now I think it is a, was a huge... I stopped developing because I thought these people are all just beyond me and above me, and your only value was if you were attractive or... <laughs> would open your legs. <laughs> Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So after surviving your adolescence and university years deep in Sydney, Bohemia, work-wise you were doing a whole lot of different things. You did some time at drama school, you were studying arts, you worked with Peter Weir on on his first film. On his first film when we, before he became Peter Weir. He was still at the Commonwealth Film Union, now called Film Australia, yeah, and he actually asked me to be his assistant director on his first feature film, and I said no because of a boyfriend. Well, rom- Silly. romantically, mm. it was pretty turbulent. You got yeah. married in your twenties and and then separated, yeah. and eventually found yourself in a in a pretty unhappy relationship with yes. a man who had yeah. a child who you yeah. were very close to. Is it still tough to think about that time and and the kind of person you were in that relationship? Yes, yes, it's still very hard. And to be honest, I still can't face it. When you make a major, major mistake in your life and you spent up to nine years, even more, trying to extricate yourself, you, you feel a bit of, sh- of shame. Like many Jewish Hungarian women in the eastern suburbs, you had a Hungarian cleaning woman who would come from the outer western suburbs to, to clean your place what advice did, did she give you? Yes, it was sort, a sort of a tradition because it was like being at home in Hungary. The, the lower classes would come to you uh, from somewhere else and, you know, be in your house. And they often, the real friendships were formed in that context. And this lady had been with me for some time. We were quite close in our own, own ways because we were 
you know, often together. Would you speak Hungarian to one another uh, or English? A bit of mix, a mixture, as as one does. And um, one day, about nine years into this relationship, I came down from from the top floor, and she was in the kitchen, and she looked at me and said, "She's what's wrong?" I said, "Oh." And I, I couldn't express it. And suddenly, from nowhere, she was a very quiet woman. She never discussed anything like this before. She said to me, why don't you leave him? And I said, oh, well, lamely, oh, I think I still love him. She just looked at me, and she knew that wasn't true anymore. And she said, you could go. I can't go, because we had discussed the fact that she had an unhappy marriage right? I can't go, she said. She had kids. There were financial constraints and so on. But you can go, she said. I thought, oh, where should I go? I said, well, your parents live down the road. Go to your parents. What's going to happen to my stepson? He'll be okay. And somehow the next day I woke up and thought, she's right. I'm going. You once wrote a sequence of poems about the different loves in your life. Yeah. Will yeah, you read I'll that have for a go. me, Susan? Yeah. Uh, this is part of a sequence when I'm talking about the first husband who was a nice guy, but next one was what I called a, a true nightmare. And then finally, the title is Some Years Past. I cleared the horizon, tasted solitude, breathed long and deep and saw riding towards me on a white charger a princess, my elegant, blue-stockinged, riding-pruited princess of a thousand daily acts of love, my widely practical, deeply romantic heart's companion. Who was this princess arriving on her white charger? Well, I mentioned it before. When I was about 45, I thought it was far too late to find a new love. I was quite resigned to being celibate and having nice friends, uh, etc. But, you know, there's a possibility it could have been a woman because I knew that that was possible. And she just appeared, you know, there was Anne Coombs and, and she was a journalist and she was only 32 and full of uh, life and vigour and and a good brain, and very, very different from me, very, very different background, and somehow we seem to suit each other. What did she look like when you met her? Well, she's very tall, almost six foot, elegant, just in a rather cultish kind of way, very forthright, um, I thought rather beautiful. <laughs> and... Um, it all began. Who did you run into on your first date when you went to the Sydney Opera House? <laughs> As luck would happen, my parents. And I thought, heavens above, would they know I'm on a date? <laughs> <laughs> and did they? <laughs> no, of course not. Even Anne said she wasn't on a date. I, I knew we were on a date. <laughs> <laughs> when you shared your um, uncertainties with Anne about whether you yeah. were ready to commit to a, a relationship with a woman, what did she say to you? Well, <laughs> she said to me, because I was you know, a bit 
sort of, oh, can I do this? It's a big leap, you know. And she said, well, you've got two options, Susan. You're 45. She didn't say over the hill, but she meant that. She said, you're 45. You could either find a middle-aged bloke with a beer belly who will take you to barbecues or you can have me. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, that's not very romantic. But at the same time, she's dead right. (laughs) (laughs) Once your parents did realise that you two were dating, how did they react? Well, my my mother didn't know. She, I said, I said to her, "Did you guess?" She said, "No." But is it Anne? She was always very intuitive. My father said, "Oh, mm, can't you be friends?" I said, "Not, not really, not this time." Too, too late and, for that, Dad. <laughs> and he said, "Well, I won't be dancing on tabletops tonight." But you know, within a few days, he was really nice to her, and they got on very well. What about your Hungarian cleaning lady? Well. Nothing was said. I didn't say anything. She didn't say anything. But after about three months of me and Anne living together, there was always a fresh nighty um, when she came on my side of the bed and suddenly, suddenly there were two nighties on the other side of the bed and that was her acceptance. That was lovely. Fresh yeah. nighty yeah. on Anne's side yeah. of the bed. Fairly early on in your relationship with Anne, you were driving out to Bathurst together and you made a stop at a pub because (laughs) you had something you needed to tell her but you needed a drink first to get the courage. What did Anne think you were about to confess? Um, Well, because it was 11 o'clock in the morning and she knew I wasn't a a drinker per se, she thought, oh, there's something must be very, very serious. So she was bated breath and I got a double scotch. I wanted to be in the corridor where no one would hear us. And and she said to me, spit it out, spit it out. And so I said, oh, okay, okay. Um, um, I've always wanted to be a writer. And she said, oh, is that all? I thought you had cancer. <laughs> Why were you so nervous about well, telling her that? Why did it feel like a confession? It, when I was about 11, my lovely teacher at my school said, you know, he, he made a little note on, on a little novel I'd written for them. I want you to be a writer in, in the future years or something like that. And and so I felt always that obligation to, I should do this. He thought I could do it and I loved him. And year after year, partly because of the push, partly my own self, my, my, own, my turbulent self, which I couldn't, I didn't find a resting place for myself. I thought I'd be hopeless as a writer. I I wouldn't know who I was. Therefore, how could I write? Because you you need a voice. You need a voice to write. Your own voice, not someone else's voice. So it kept on putting it off and off. I even went back to university and did law, thinking I should have a real career like a lawyer. And finally I... I ran out of options. Then I met Anne. I thought, I have to tell her. She was already a a writer herself. She would already written a book and she was only 32. I was 45. I thought she'd be pissed off, really, about the whole thing. Why? Well, you know, two writers together. How did she react? Well, she just said, when are you going to start, Susan? 
in the story. And as soon as she said that, I thought, oh, okay, when am I going to start? I might as well start fairly soon. And that's what I did. You began writing Hetty and Me, the yeah, book about yeah. your, your mother and, and yeah. that history. And as part of that project, you made a trip back to Hungary yeah, with yes. Anne, back to Budapest. What was the city like on that trip? Well, you know, it's, it's 1990, just a year before the war had fallen and communism had, had fallen with it. And so it was like a city waking out of a bad dream and you didn't know what the future was going to bring and the city was, it wasn't, it wasn't beautiful anymore. It used to be a beautiful city, but communism, the war, and people were still afraid, like, will, the, will communists come back at any moment? And and I was terribly disillusioned, all those wonderful stories my, my mother told me about Budapest. You know, Budapest was like the Paris of the East. But underneath all, all that, I became intrigued by it. I saw the beauty underneath the grime. I, I got to know the people. I sort of fell in love and I realised that I'm a Hungarian, you know, underneath all this, I had the language, very, very kitchen Hungarian, what I call it a kitchen Hungarian, when you all you spoke is your family tongue. But I couldn't read the papers because they were high Hungarian. Your mother and stepfather came and spent time yeah. with you there. What parts of the city did your mum want to show you? Well, as part of the research for Hetty and me, she want, I want her to show me where she lived where her school was, uh, where they got married, and even uh, the gallery where she first met my my real father, when he she pointed to a picture that she liked, and he he bought it for her as her first gift. You and Susan spent many years living in the country. What organisation did the two of you begin in two thousand and one? Well. Lots of people remember when Tampa happened and the famous or infamous pronouncement of the Prime Minister saying, we will decide who comes to this country in the way in which they come. And I was incensed by that. And having had a refugee background myself, because we had to flee first from the Holocaust and then from communists, I was in total sympathy with these people had to flee for various reasons, often political and in fear of their lives. So I thought, what can I do? I'm, I'm not in a big city. Uh, so I talked to Anne and to another friend, Helen McHugh, and we thought, act local, think global, act local. So we decided to organise a meeting called Rural Australians for Refugees, and that was only 10 of us at the time. Uh, but we got good publicity. And the next day, my email was flooded with people saying, can I join? Mm. Uh, well, how can I set one in, up in my town? People saying, I thought I was the only person and I, I want to do something, mm. you know. And it, it became a big, big organisation quite quickly. With the energy that you were giving to this activism work around rural Australians and refugees, 
Your dad made a joke about all the time you were spending yes. with that. What did he say? Well, he actually said, he's very strong Hungarian accent, I'll try it. I said, uh, I was once a refugee, Miss Varga, but what about me? <laughs> Give me some time. <laughs> Give me some time. That, that was it. <laughs> he really had lived a remarkable life, yes. your, your father, your stepfather. Having lost his first wife and children in the Holocaust, he ends up rebuilding his life and that of this new family on the other side of the world and celebrated his 90th birthday in Berlin, yes. which is really yeah. sticking yeah. it to Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> so he, then he lived to a good age, surrounded by this, this family. Mm. Why did his death in his 90s, why did it hit you so hard, do you think? Look, he seemed to be indestructible. He, he seemed to keep on going. And somehow we thought, oh, well, he's, he's still okay. And somehow the idea of his death receded. So somehow it came as a shock because he was mortal after all. <laughs> and, of course, he was the backbone of the family in, in many ways, yeah. What did his death do to your mum? She sank into a, a deep depression and very unlike her, she lost her mojo, I suppose. She lost her desire to live. Did she look different physically? Could you see that in her, her body? Yes, she lost a huge amount of weight and clothes uh, hung from her. She always been quite strong physically. She became quite frail and, and tiny. I, I first realised how much she's changed because used to be a very good breaststroke swimmer, Eastern Europe, you know, breaststroke. And, um, and I, I took her to a, a pool thinking she loved this. This is a private pool. It's very nice. I want to get her back in the water. And she said to me, somehow I'm afraid of the water. I don't know why. Mm. And I thought, oh, dear, something's really broken in her. Yeah. As her daughter, you're desperately trying to find ways to help her with this terrible depression. Did anything make any difference? No, I tried everything, I think. Uh, and she sank in such a depression, she was desperate to kill herself, and she tried four times. And she, she finally succeeded, and it was a terrible, terrible time, and everyone who'd ever known her was shocked and and dismayed by that deterioration that but in the end I thought I had to write about it to even think how on earth this has happened and one thing that came to me that she had such a impulse towards life until it, it disappeared and she lost that that will to live and that same will that she had in her turned towards death there was no stopping her. Although her death at 87 happened so many years after the war, yeah. do you think of your mum as another victim of the Holocaust in some sense? It has occurred to me often that even though it wasn't talked about really, that those traumas in the, from that time, they catch up with you. You know, we the famous example of Primo Levi, who's the great recorder of the Holocaust, a great writer, he, he committed suicide after all these wonderful books 
with all the claim he, he had, it caught up with him. He couldn't live, live with it anymore. I thought that's one of it, one reason, not the only reason. Rebuilding her life at this, at her age, she wasn't interested anymore. What phrase did you put on her gravestone, Susan? Well, I put in a remarkable, a remarkable woman. My sister put in our eternal love. That was 20 years ago now that, that your mother died. When you think of her now, what do you remember? I'm starting to remember her as she was most of her life, you know. Um, um, I'm not haunted as much of the last few months and I can see the energy, I can see the love, um, I can feel her, vo- I hear her voice, you know, the way she dressed, the way she wore her earrings, all, all sorts of small details. Do you have a photo of her up in your in your house? Is there a image? Yes, I do. What, yeah. what does she look just, like? Just recently. Well, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous photo just before she got married and she's in her bloom and um, there it is. And that painting that your birth father purchased for her, did that survive the war? Yes, thank heavens. And when when I think about the one thing I would take in case of a fire, was almost happened in my district just recently, I'd take that picture. It's a it's a lovely archetypal Hungarian village with a pond, people skating on it, and a, a rooster and these hens right in the foreground. And it's rather beautiful very nostalgic, and I'd take that. There was another loss late last year when your dear wife, Anne, passed away. There's been a lot of loss, Susan. It must strike you as you're reflecting on your life. Maybe that's true of anyone who's reached the age that you're at, but how has this grief been for you and, and how have you finding a thread through it? Well, it's. I think it's... It's hard to say that's the worst thing that's ever happened to me because the death of my mother, I thought, was it the worst thing, but I think this is the worst. Um, thank heavens I'd finished this book and was dying when I was, I was putting the last touches to it and she was still involved until the last couple of weeks. The illness came out of the blue, variant sarcoma, took her life in the end within a year. She was younger than me. She was vigorous. Um, she was the light of my life. Her, her last letter says that I was the light of hers, and that's how it is. And now that light is gone, and I don't know why I'm still here, but I must be a survivor. I must be, because here I am. But I've worn her earrings and uh, I know her love is here. That's what I live with. Your book is called Hard Joy. What does that mean to you? What's that phrase? What are the hard joys in your life? Well, I, I, I've yet to find the, the joy in this one, but I'm, I'm hoping to find it. <laughs> but you know, the hard joy of writing has is, is, always been a hard joy for me. I love to do it, but it's very, very hard. 10% inspiration and, and 90% perspiration, that's writing. And so I thought, well, 
if if writing is, is a hard job, so is life, because happiness is, is fleeting. But when you have a joy, it, it tends to last because it it's been often hard won. So all these all these tragedies and but I've also been so lucky, you know, in other ways. So I think life is a hard joy, isn't it? What about dogs? Are there dogs in your dogs? life <laughs> at the moment? Yes, yes, yes. And I, I owe, again, my life, I think, for, my, for the last dog was Anne's idea uh, when she was about to have a terrible operation and take her arm off. It might have saved her life but didn't. I said, well, you know, you only have one arm. I've two bad arms. <laughs> How are we going to cope with a puppy? And she said, well, I'll train it and we need the distraction. And then when she was very close to dying, she said, go and get, get a sofa, Susan. I said, why? She said, because when I'm gone, Suki, the dog's name, you need to sit with Suki and have a cuddle. You'll survive. And that's what you've been doing. That's exactly what I've been doing with Suki on the sofa, thinking of Anne. Please give Suki a cuddle for us on that sofa, Susan. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for being my guest. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Susan Varga was my guest on Conversations today and her memoir is Hard Joy, Life and Writing. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.